our newcomers who weren't able to be with us last night. Welcome to our online audience. It was a wonderful beginning last night. Sean Casey gave a remarkable keynote address, and we'll be building on those conversations with our the, the heart of the symposium, which are our three panels today. And again, I want to welcome all of you, not only as um, observers to these panels, but as active participants. Our hope for this symposium is to bring together academics, practitioners, scholars, and uh, grassroots folks in the communities to engage with one another around these important intersections of religion, government, and immigration. So welcome to all of you. We look forward to engaging in rich um, and vigorous conversation. So I have a few framing comments, if I, if I might uh, take time to do so. I'm, I'm Diane Moore, and I'm a professor here and the director of the Religious Literacy Project, and I've had the privilege of working with Sarah Bin, Levy Brightman, and Lauren Kirby and Steve Prothero and David Hampton to organize this series of events. And today, of course, is religious literacy and immigration. We often say that we are a nation of immigrants. And this common phrase has been echoed throughout our history and is itself one of the defining pillars of American identity. It captures the rich histories of migrants who have traveled to our shores over centuries from across the globe inspired by a dizzying array of motivations, including but not limited to seeking refuge, security, reunion with family, and relative prosperity. So in this sense, the assertion that we are a nation of immigrants is absolutely true. But this phrase masks two other critical pillars of American history that are also critical to our identity. First, the genocide of native peoples who populated this continent for centuries and long before the arrival of Europeans and the eventual colonization of these shores. And second, the prolonged forced migration of African through the institution of chattel slavery. To say that we are a nation of immigrants makes these two other pillars of American identity invisible in ways that hinder our capacity to learn from and come to terms with this complicated and devastating history. Regarding the relevance of religion in these phenomena, dominant strands of, for example, not exclusively Christian expression gave sanction to colonialism, genocide, and slavery, while other strands of Christian expression challenged these actions. So understanding these influences is an important dimension of understanding the foundations of US identity. Two other brief snapshots, if you will. In a later era, there's a remarkable exchange of letters from 1790 between Jewish, a Jewish warden of a synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, and President George Washington. The occasion was that Washington was visiting Rhode Island shortly after its citizens voted to ratify the Constitution. Washington was met, as these things go, by a cluster of local dignitaries upon his arrival. And Moses Sexus, the Jewish warden of that synagogue, was among those greeting the president. So this is significant in itself. This is Rhode Island, of course. So we have a dignitary who's Jewish chosen to represent the community. This would not have happened in Massachusetts, for example. So context matters. 
But here's an excerpt from the uh, letter that he read to the president. Deprived as we heretofore have been of the invaluable rights of free citizens, we now with a deep sense of gratitude to the almighty disposer of all events, behold a government erected by the majesty of the people, a government which to bigotry gives no sanction, to persecution no assistance, but generously affording to all liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship, deeming everyone of whatever nation, tongue, or language equal parts of the great government machine. And Washington responded in writing just a few days later. And here's an excerpt from his response. The citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. Now these comments are clearly aspirational, and they clearly were far from realized, even at the time of their utterance. But this is also part of our legacy. These tensions between our aspirations and our reality have defined us from the very start and continue to define us still. And finally, one last vignette. The Statue of Liberty, of course, stands as an iconic symbol of this assertion that we are a nation of immigrants. The inscription is adopted from a poem by Emma <coughs> Lazarus, herself, by the way, born into a Sephardic Jewish family and whose great-grandmother was a niece of Moses Sexus. This is the inscription. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. The ref wretched refuse of your teeming shore send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It seems to me that minimally, one of the ways to atone for the two devastations of our three pillars of identity, the devastations of genocide and the devastation of chattel slavery. It seems to me that to atone for these, that we should relentlessly and vigorously try to live up to the aspiration of our third pillar, that we are a nation of immigrants who will give to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, and that we will embrace as our own the tired, the poor, the huddled masses 
yearning to be free. Let us begin. I turn to our panel and look forward to your comments. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I guess I'll start. <laughs> well, uh, good morning. Happy holidays. Uh, my name's uh, Joe Curtitoni. I'm the mayor of uh, Somerville. I'm a world traveler, literally yards away. Um, and I'm honored to be participating with such a distinguished uh, group of people on this panel. And I want to thank Diane and the Literacy Project and uh, Divinity School and BU for hosting this event and for having me here today and for really the important work um, that they do around examining the, you know, the complex intersections of our religion in many professions and aspects of life, including government. And from my perspective, uh, where I live and have lived professionally uh, in the last 22 years in local government. And um, you know, it's an issue in a, in a realm, um, even someone like myself who's been mayor now, finishing my 14th year, can you continue to ask how we operate in that realm? Um, yeah, I don't think anyone could argue that government leaders and religious leaders pose, um, possess many differences, but the truth is we have an, in common a really critical and important responsibility, really an obligation uh, to lead in an ethically and morally sound manner, uh, really for the greater good that people represent. Um, and people who aspire hope to be part of our communities. Uh, in my opinion, this commonality has uh, become apparent, um, more apparent than ever, and impossible to ignore over the past couple of years, but especially the last year, as the topics of immigration and sanctuary cities uh, have been thrust uh, into the national spotlight, and so much negative rhetoric has been targeted at one of our most vulnerable population, newcomers to our community, to our country. Uh, we hear that term uh, sanctuary a lot, and really, uh, as we all know and read and come to learn, what began as a religious effort to help displaced refugees in the 1980s has since become a politically charged um, buzzword uh, with different connotations and interpretations, really depending on how you ask, and there's really no set definition. But I want to tell you about what sanctuary means for my city, for some of them. And for us, it means uh, lower crime since we first became a sanctuary city in 1987. I think crime in Somerville is down almost 60%. Certainly not for that reason, but many consequences of how we, by adopting that policy, what is meant to gain credibility and trust uh, from newcomers to our community. In fact, uh, crime rate for every type of violent crime is below the state and national averages. Uh, sanctuary city means, uh, sanctuary means that uh, local police and other agencies really do not and will not profile residents to run immigration checks on them, and sanctuary in Somerville also means that when undocumented persons or victims of, or witnesses to crime, um, a, a witness to the crime, they don't have to fear deportation if they just come forward and, and speak uh, to a law enforcement official. So really, there helps us. It means we're able to engage others to deal with issues and problems around public health and public safety and improve the quality of life in all our neighborhoods. Uh, really, sanctuary also means we don't hand over people for deportation for civil offenses like running a red light or on their bicycle. Uh, we, don't, we don't do that because we refuse to uh, tear families apart uh, over misdemeanors, and doing so just fuels a 
broken immigration system uh, that needs to be fixed. And really, what, contrary to what's been parroted now and compounded and hammered over Washington, and sanctuary in Somerville uh, doesn't mean we're breaking any existing laws. And, and we're not harboring criminals. And we're communicating regularly, and we are communicating regularly and cooperating in the interest of public safety with many of our federal agencies. And really, no one who commits a crime or felony or serious crime gets a free pass in, in our community. But equally as important as crime statistics and operational statistics, uh, for us, sanctuary means that we are a community that welcomes people of all ethnicities, races, and religions, regardless of their immigration status, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, their socioeconomic status, or really any, any other identifier. But to me, and many in our community, sanctuary is about more than simply welcoming immigrants. It's about more than even being a community that where more than 50 languages are spoken in our, our neighborhoods and in our, in our schools. It's about truly engaging with our immigrant communities, finding out about their needs, connecting with them with services, and getting them involved with city initiatives and efforts, letting them know that I'm their mayor and this is their community and they are vested with all our lives as we are invested and their lives. And that takes much more than a proclamation of support or the display of an oversized banner of a city building, which are important demonstrative steps we need to take. But it takes really uh, careful consideration and thoughtful outreach and understanding in, about and the appreciation of our immigrants, their cultures, and also with that, including their faith, uh, their religion. Uh, the literacy project's method notes that religion is embedded within cultures and that culture cannot be successfully understood without examining religion. I, Sean and I and, and Scott Hoshberg were talking about this earlier that, and we've alluded to the fact that in government we've learned so much about how to, we should separate our religion from our services and from our administration of government and operations, and, but we're missing so much about learning about the people we're sworn to represent and fight for. So in preparation for this panel, a liaison from the city of Somerville Summer Viva Division, which is really tasked to taking on those outreach efforts I mentioned earlier to better understand and connect with the city's immigrant communities, echoed the importance of um, religion in some cultures. Uh, she said that when people come here from different countries, they bring a lot of things with them that aren't physical. And my mother's often told me that I'm the son of Italian immigrants, and my first language is Italian. My mother and father came from a place called Gaeta, Italy, and over throughout the 1900s, late 1800s, 1900s, many of them immigrated to East Cambridge and Somerville. And she'll tell me this, they bring, and I've experienced this, they bring their memories, uh, their food, and, and their faith. For faith, as a, as a devout Roman Catholic, and for us, it was the faith and praying to the um, patron saints of our, of our, of our villages uh, in Italy. Uh, faith is so important, and serves as really the first um, gathering place for many immigrants. It's a familiar place or a feeling in a sea of uh, new buildings and uh, new faces. It's a place where people go to feel comfortable and my mother said it's safe and a place where they go to build community or to maintain in their minds a community they thought they had in a place like Italy or, or Portugal and Central America or somewhere else and, and to connect with others. And so it's our responsibility as local government leaders is to welcome new arrivals, uh, learn about them, connect with them, and help them to settle in and, and feel safe. And, uh, and then we need to be understanding of their situations. We need to have empathy for them and 
put ourselves in their place where they're starting from and understand their cultures and establish connection in the place where they're really most comfortable. So this is one of the most important ways that our city and faith-based organizations in Somerville uh, really connect. Our, our liaisons, uh, and let me tell you why we've established some of you, but we found out a few years ago, we're a big believer in data. We gather data and analyze data of all different types. Found out that more than 90% of our communications and outreach efforts were not reaching our foreign-born population. A third of our city is foreign-born. And that was problematic. How can we really serve the entire community and make it an exceptional place to live, work, play, raise a family if a majority of our population didn't understand what was happening in the community? How could we gain their trust, their respect, if we did not do that? So we build with some of either, uh relationships with religious organizations and clergy members and serve our immigrant, that serve our immigrant communities and establish those essential conduits of communication channels uh, so that we know that our immigrant community is what they want what they need, and we can connect them to the services that will help them. And uh, really, these channels have been uh, critical for disseminating information and words of support and solidarity in the aftermath of the Trump administration's various immigration announcements, from threats to sanctuary cities to decisions about ending TPS. Uh, ending TPS. I say all the time, whenever the president, this president, or Jeff Sessions, makes a statement about immigrants, here's what happens in my city. Kids don't go to school. Families don't seek preventive health care measures. People don't go to work, and they sink further into the shadows and in the margins, and which really calls for us to stand up and say the things that are important, to double down on our values, which I believe are not just some of those values, but core American values of being a, or seeking a diverse and tolerant society, and tolerant America. So faith-based groups are working alongside the community and creating rapid response plans along with allowing legal clinics to be held in their facilities and many other measures. But this past year, and I'll end with this, has shown me that the intersection of government and religion can often be found through the similar moral obligations as well as through the people that we serve, uh, that they are effective and even times necessary. There are ways in which the two sectors can work together to get to where they want to achieve, what they want to achieve, that the better outcome for the greater good that we both seek. Uh, so um, I'm excited to be part of this discussion, hear what my panelists have to say, and engage with you in a dialogue in these very uncertain times. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Selena Barrios Milner. I'm with the City of Boston's Office uh, for Immigrant Advancement. Um, we uh, were an office actually started in 1998, um, known as the Office of New Bostonians, and I think it was a more optimistic time, um, a time when um, our office was really about celebrating the cultures of all the different immigrant communities, um, connecting them to city services, and really just being a place in City Hall that could say, you know, Boston is... We're all Bostonians, no matter where we came from. Um, with the, the new administration and I think the, the different needs of our immigrant communities and also the national climate, um, we, we took a step which um, didn't seem that radical at the time, which was to put the word immigrant in our name. Um, so we became the Office for Immigrant Advancement um, because we wanted to be able um, we wanted uh, people to be able to find us. A lot of times, you know, like New Bostonians was a nice name, but 
but immigrants had a hard time finding out that we were there. Um, and, you know, we, we really wanted to represent that we don't want to just welcome folks, but we want to make sure that, that they can pursue their dreams. We know that on most outcomes, um, those that are foreign-born, even if you control for levels of education, um, they're making less money, they have worse health outcomes, um, and in general, um, they don't fare as well as, as their U.S.-born counterparts. So we wanted to make sure that as a city, um, that, that we are um, helping folks really achieve those, those dreams and, and realize their potential. Um, little did we know um, when we started with that mission that, that um, we would also have to really double down on just the very basic levels of helping people feel welcome and safe in such um, a really negative climate, um, and not just negative in, in terms of speech, but in terms of real rights being taken away. And so um, we, our work depends on not just partnering with community organizations to make sure that, that people know that, that um, they're welcome and how to access city services, um, but, but a, a lot of faith-based institutions because we recognize um, faith-based institutions as um, one is where, that's obviously where, where people are gathering. You have to go to, to where people are. Um, but they're also safe spaces with, with um, trusted leaders. And um, right now, government of any level is, is really intimidating to a lot of folks. So um, we have, um, you know, just for, for our legal clinics or any of the programs that we offer, we have um, faith-based partners. We, we established an advisory board for our office that is made up of um, a diversity of stakeholders, but we do have um, faith-based institutions uh, present there um, so that we can make sure that, that their um, parishioners and, and members are, are getting the latest information. Um, and we also, um, we also take the input of um, what we're hearing from, from different institutions um, as we go about policy making or, or developing programs for the city. Um, recently, in the wake of the election, um, we have noticed, obviously, an increased um, fear in our communities. And so we established these immigrant community forums. The first one was, was held at the Islamic Society of Boston Cultural Center. It was immediately after the Muslim travel ban. And it was really important that um, you know, the mayor um, was there to, to speak to folks that were very concerned about their families. Um, regardless of what country they were from, they knew that this policy would just mean increased um, violence against Muslim communities. So, so we tried to um, get out there as soon as possible to make sure that they knew that in the city where people live and work and, and go to school that they will continue to be welcomed. Um, and, and the way, the format of these forums that we're doing, and we're doing them in, in a lot of different communities. We're actually planning one in, in Mattapan right now um, with uh, religious leaders there. Um, but the, the format is that not only that the mayor goes and talks to people and says, hey, you're welcome here, and, and we're happy that you're here, but we also have um, directors of key city services there to listen to what people's needs and concerns are, whether it's you know bullying in the schools or whether it's housing or, or whatever other issue may, which may or may not be related to their immigration or faith um, 
identification, um, immigration status or, or, or faith that they identify with, um, we make sure that, that folks are there that can actually um, respond and act on specific questions and concerns. So I think that's one step that we're taking is really partnering with faith-based institutions to go to where people are um, to really make sure that, um, that they know that, that they have our support, that they know mechanisms that they can use if they have any problems in their community. Um, the other piece that, um, that our office works on is just in, in developing policies um, to help um, the immigrant community, um, not just to help serve them, but to help them have a more active voice in government. Um, so two um, policies that, that um, we have passed in, you know, in this, this past administration, um, one was the Trust Act, which um, Mayor um, Curtitone mentioned. Um, and uh, it's a, it's a, a bill that um, limits the cooperation between local police and federal immigration enforcement. Um, we also passed a communications access ordinance which um, makes sure that no matter what language you speak, that you can be served equitably in the city of Boston. Um, the other piece that, that, and this is just sort of like, you know, um, a project that, that is a personal passion of mine that, that we've been, um, we've been really trying to um, integrate the conversation about immigrant equity with the conversation about racial equity because we recognize that um, the immigrants that are being harassed and targeted um, by policy and on the streets are immigrants of color, immigrants that have certain accents, immigrants that come from certain parts of the world. Um, and we know in Boston we have immigrants from everywhere, right? But we know that who's, who are the ones that are getting, um, you know, receiving the, the abuse. Um, and so um, we have done um, a lot to integrate the, the city's efforts around racial dialogues and resilience and really ensure that there's a strong immigrant voice at every level of those conversations. Um, because we, we know that there's a lot of shared, um, shared struggles and also uniqueness within the different groups that are here. Um, so I think, you know, I, I know that we have a lot of panelists, so I don't want to um, go on too long, but I think that um, we, have, um, we have always leaned on religious institutions um, to be our voice into the community, um, but I think even more so now than... Um, than in you know maybe the last wave of, of when you saw that sort of civic faith partnership was in the 80s or when the sanctuary movement started. I think we're kind of returning to those times where we're, it's sort of like now we're gonna have to be um, <laughs> moving government to, to the pews, right? And, and making sure that, um, that people feel safe to then um, really speak up about what's going on in their neighborhoods or, or um, or really who they, what they want their city to be like. So um, thank you for, for having us here today and I look forward to hearing from the rest of the panel. Good morning. Uh, I think I need uh, some help with the PowerPoint. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Patricia Montes. I am an immigrant from Honduras, Central America. I have been living in the U.S. for the past 14 years in Boston, I can believe that. Uh, and I have been directing Centro Presente for the past nine years. Uh, and I'm going to use some pictures to show you a little bit more about the work that we do. Uh, Centro Presente, 
Centro Presente eh, is a, an organization that was founded uh, during the 80s um, in our history as an organization. Uh, has a very strong connection with the Santry movement, actually, during the 80s. Uh, in fact, Centro Presente was founded a year after Monsignor Romero was assassinated in El Salvador. And our organization was founded by a Catholic nun in Cambridge, Massachusetts, here in Cambridge. Uh, and we were, our first house was a church here in Cambridge. Um, and, um, well, we have been changing over the years, but uh, we don't have a strong connection with religion. We are an independent organization, but of course, we work, uh, we do a lot of work with the faith community. Um, we have been doing a lot of work with the faith community over the years, and we are a Latino immigrant-led statewide organization that struggle for uh, immigrant rights and for economic justice. So at that time, Centro Presente was doing a lot of work uh, against U.S. military intervention in Central America, right? And was doing a lot of education and also advocacy around that issue. And that topic is still relevant for us. It's part of our mission to continue doing that because the U.S. has a long history of uh, military intervention in Latin America, and we see that uh, as a clear uh, result of forced migration uh, from uh, Latin America. So, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that uh, later. But um, over the years, uh, the organization was that founded and directed by uh, people in this, you know, in the solidarity movement. But uh, the organization made a very important political decision. And that political decision was to put the power of the organization and the direction of the organization in the hands of the community that was being affected, right? Uh, particularly people uh, that were coming uh, from El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and many other countries during the 80s that w were escaping the civil conflict at that time. Um, so here we are, and we do, we provide legal services. We have an ESF program, uh, we have a, a legal department. We also do literature development and we also do community organizing and political advocacy. And with very few resources, we do political advocacy in different levels, at the local level, uh, state level, and national and transnational. But you cannot help come with very little resources. You can, can you do uh, transnational work? We are able to do transnational work because we are part of a national coalition that is composed of maybe 50 community-based organizations around the country. And for us, it's extremely important to do work with civil society organizations in migrants and in countries like Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, because the, the reasons that I mentioned before. Um, so, oh, next one, yes. So I'm going to share with you uh, our experience about um, doing uh, work at the local and statewide level. Uh, we went from national to statewide because we, we had a lot of frustration, right? We were investing a lot of energy and resources trying to pass an immigration reform that never passed because the U.S. government never had the political will to reform and transform the U.S. immigration system. So because we don't have a lot of resources, we were saying, let's do work at the statewide level. 
because our people are here. And we should do, be able, we should be able to work with our local governments to change public policy. So, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, the Secure Communities Program, but the Secure Communities Program was the legal tool that the US government had been using to identify, detain, to target and deport undocumented people, right, from the US. The problem that we had with this program is that they were telling us that this program was designed to identify criminals. However, according to official data, most of the people that they were detaining and deporting with this, the implementation of this program was people with non-criminal convictions. And let me tell you, do you know uh, in what city this program was implemented for the first time? Boston, thank you. And it was Boston in 2006 during the Menino time, right? So that's why we were saying, oh, we want to pass an immigration reform, and here we are in Boston, a city that said that it's very progressive implementing this awful program. So this, this picture, my hands in a, in a rally at the State House against uh, the Secure Communities Program. This was in um, 20, 2010, I believe. So, yeah. Yes, so after that, uh, we, conform a coalition. And the name of the coalition was the Massachusetts Trust Act Coalition. So the fact that we have four cities that have the Trust Act is not just because our local governments are extremely progressive. We have been doing a lot of work, right? And I'm not talking about just, uh, the cities are very important and I, I, I wanna honor the work that Mayor Curtatone has been doing for years, years with the immigrant community. but. Uh, we have been doing a lot of work in collaboration with the faith community, with the legal community, and other community-based organizations. So Centro Presente, in fact, is the organization that conformed the coalition and led the Massachusetts Trust Coalition for many years. And here we are with uh, Senator Jim Jimmy Eldridge, who was the main sponsor of the uh, Trust at the state level. So, but very easily, very easily, we found that, that Massachusetts is not necessarily very progressive. So for the past three years, we have been trying to pass this bill at the state level. And the Trust Act is just, it's very simple. That ICE is not going to collab collaborate with uh, police in, in cases that people don't have criminal conviction, right? Convictions. However, it was very hard, very difficult to go to the state house and have a conversation with statewide policymakers about immigration. They don't want to touch it, right? And, and it was, for me as an immigrant, it was a frustration because my husband actually is from here. And he said, oh, you know, we're going to Massachusetts. And Massachusetts is very progressive. And I found that, that Massachusetts, in my opinion, in our opinion, at least when we talk about immigration, is not a progressive state. For the past 10 years, we have been trying to change public policy at the state level. Nothing is happening. We don't have in-state tuition in Massachusetts. States like Florida and Minnesota have in-state tuition. We don't. We don't have a, a driver's licenses for undocumented people, right? We don't have TROSAC and many other things that we should have if we are a progressive state. So very easily we found out that it was very hard. So this is a picture with an undocumented immigrant member of Central Presidente who was testifying in front of a committee uh, in, um, at the State House. And we were building a very powerful legal argument 
a very powerful motor argument, but it was not enough. And this is before having a, a, a Republican in the House, right? So just pay attention because for us, sometimes both parties are part of a political structure that is oppressing people, especially people of color in this country. Next one. Thank you, Mayor. And here I am with our, one of the most uh, anti-immigrant people that I know. I don't know how to describe it. And I was, with all the respect, I was telling him, I think you're very racist and anti-immigrant. And he was saying, no, you, how can you say that? But I said, well, that's what I think. Let's have a conversation. And we never are able to have a, like, a, like an open and clear conversation with this personaje. I don't know how to say that in English. So, <laughs> okay, so that was a little bit about the fight that we had about Strozak, and I know time is an issue, so I want to share with you a little bit more about a campaign that we have right now, and I'm so glad to see Pastor Kiki here, who is representing the Haitian community, because right now we have another struggle. And, oh, oh, go back to your picture. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry, I know I have a a little pictures of uh, the Trozac. This is Mayor Curtatone. <laughs> Before going to the other thing. Uh, this was, I think, in 2015, 2014, when the Trozac passed in Somerville. Central Presente used to be in Somerville. We were there for eight years, and we moved to the city of Boston uh, three years ago. And because we had a lot of frustration at the, at the state level, we said, let's go to, to the cities, and let's do some work at the city level. So that's why we changed our strategy, and we were advocating for uh, local versions of the Trozac at the municipal level. And we identified the most progressive city. That was part of the strategy, was the city of Somerville. So we had a meeting with Mayor Curtatone, and I remember that I sent a message and said, we're requesting a meeting with Mayor Curtatone to talk about the Trozac. And the, the, the first meeting that we had, he said, just let me, what can I do? Where do I need to sign? So we were able to pass the Trozac because Mayor Cortatone passed an executive order at that moment. And this is a press conference where, where, when he was announcing the pass of the Trozac in Somerville. I don't know if you remember that, eh? Oh, I remember. Of you do. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am in a, this was Boston, uh, and we were working with uh, uh, City Council Joe Seking, who is the main sponsor of the Trozac in Boston. And I, I can tell you, testimonies, a lot of work. It's not just like, oh, they are extremely progressive. You have to do a lot of work, right, even in Boston. So the next one, uh, this is Lawrence, the, the, the last campaign that we had. And we did that work in collaboration with SA32VJ and MVP, that is a faith community-based organization in, in, in Lawrence. And I want to share this information. This is Cesar. Cesar Bog is a former organizer with Centro Presente. He had DACA. He's an immigrant from Guatemala. He was testifying in Lawrence, uh, advocating for the, for the Trozac in Lawrence. And I want to say that I was very frustrated in Lawrence, too. I was traveling from Boston uh, to Lawrence almost on a daily basis to do work with the local organization there. And I think that campaign took like six months. And uh, the mayor, Rivera, he didn't sign it. He was against. And I, I can say that in public because that's on record. And I was one of the main organizers that was implementing that campaign. And I was very angry. I'm sorry for use that language. But I was so mad because, uh, you know, he's the only, I think it's the only Latino uh, mayor in our state. So, but now 
it's, it's a contradiction because now he's happy saying that Lawrence is a sanctuary city. So next, thank you. So I also want to share with you a little bit more about what are we doing now because we are very worried because this administration has a clear agenda and it's remove right uh, all the ways that people can use to regularize their status and the poor more people, they have a clear agenda and they are implementing that agenda already. So they are eliminating a program that names TPS. I don't know if you're familiar with TPS, but it's a temporary protected status that provide um, a work permit to people from countries that, that have been suffering uh, natural disasters or civil conflicts. Um, so we have a lot of people, almost 300,000 people um, around the U.S. that have TPS, a lot of people from Haiti, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and they already eliminated the TPS for Nicaragua, South Sudan, and, and Haiti. So they are not playing. So we're, we have a campaign right now to raise awareness about TPS. Centro presented launched a campaign in January of this year, and um, we're doing a lot of work. In fact, we are also using the same strategy, passing municipal resolutions. We know that this is a symbolic act because we're not changing public policy because it's the federal government that had the power to change, to you know, eliminate or extend TPS. However, we have been able to pass three municipal resolutions against. Uh, Somerville was the first city who passed the resolution in support of TPS. Then we went to Boston. We were able to pass that resolution in Boston, and we also passed a resolution in. Um, Cambridge, and we passed the first national resolution at the state level. It was a bipartisan resolution in support of TPS, and here I am with my organizer, Jennifer Hernandez. We have been directing this campaign around TPS uh, and since January of this year. So this resolution was very important because it was bipartisan. But let me tell you, it was just a simple resolution. We're not changing public policy. And some policymakers at the, at the, at the House we're afraid to do it. I'm telling you, so, but this is what's going on. So, and the last thing, the last thing that I wanna say, oh, this is actually a Harvard student who is the son of a mother who had TPS from El Salvador. And she had been renewing TPS with Centro Presente for the past 20 years. And they are afraid that they are going, that the government is going to, you know, maybe deport their parents at some point. So the next one, this is Somerville, when we were able to pass the municipal resolution in Somerville, the next one, uh, this is Cambridge, when we were able to pass the resolution in Cambridge. And this is a member of Centro Presente, who had TPS, she's from El Salvador, she was doing an interview with local media. And here I am with uh, uh, Councillor Staking, who was the main sponsor of the resolution in Boston. Yeah, and Mayor Curtatone was the keynote speaker at the last rally that we had when we were announcing the resolution at the statewide level. And the last thing that I want to mention, something that is extremely important for us, uh, educate people about the root causes of forced migration. For, at least for Centro Presente, it is extremely impossible to change public policy without educating people about why people are coming to the U.S. without proper documents, particularly from Mexico and Central America. Most of our members are coming from Central America, countries like Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And sometimes we're not able to understand the crisis that countries like Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador are living right now. And I think it's, it's, it's very hard to go to a policymaker at the state house or at the local level 
and let them and say, listen, you have to support the immigrant community when they don't have any idea about what are the reasons that are behind forced migration. At this point, Honduras and El Salvador are the most dangerous places in Earth after Syria, according to the UN. And that reality has been invisible within the conversation about immigration in the US. So structural violence, corruption and impunity, lack of employment and work opportunities, structural poverty, and also the implementation of economic policies like free trade agreements like CAFTA and NAFTA are part of the problem. And also the pol these policies are being imposed by the US government in our countries. And these policies like free trade agreements are only free for corporations and only free for the elites, but not free for ordinary people. Ordinary people are the ones that are coming here from Central America looking for, not for better opportunities. We should change that rhetoric. They are, they are trying to survive. They are trying to survive because they, be, be, they are being killed by the gangs, by the organized crime and narco-activity in our countries of origin. So I know time is an issue. We have more panelists. And I hope that we're going to have more time for questions. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Marjean Perhot. I'm the director at Catholic Charities Refugee and Immigration Services. And I'm very honored to have the opportunity to be here before you and to be part of this really esteemed group of panelists. So what I'd like to do today um, in the short time we have is share a little bit about Catholic Charities, specifically our work with refugees and immigrants, our partnerships, and the government resources that we rely upon. Um, I'm sure most of you here know this, but I, I do always feel it's important to say, you know, Catholic Charities, yes, we are a faith-based agency, but we serve all people, period. We don't ask, if you're Catholic, we, you know, we ask, do you need an ESOL class? Do you need a bag of food? Do you need an attorney to help you? I couldn't even tell you what religions are the people that we serve. This is not something that we're, we are interested in. We're just here to help. And so our mission to serve all people with compassion and dignity is not unique just to Catholic Charities of Boston. It is part of the Catholic Charities mission across the country. Um, and you know, Catholic Charities across the country really represent over 40 million people in poverty. And here at Catholic Charities in Boston, we are rooted in services to immigrants. In fact, we were founded in 1903 to serve, at that time, the new immigrant families, Germans, Italians, Southeast Europeans, coming to work in Boston mills and factories. Many of these immigrants needed a place to leave their children during the days and nights when they worked. And so Catholic Charities was started as a daycare provider, childcare services, which we still do today, having over 1,100 kids in care every day. And we also started as an adoption agency. Many parents were not able to care for their children and put them up for adoption. So that was some of our very core work. And today, we continue that same tradition. The majority of the people we serve are immigrants and refugees. We have over 90 programs located in 27 sites throughout the greater Boston region. So we cover from Boston to Brockton, from Lowell and Lynn, and far north as Gloucester, and as far south as Hull, where we have our Sunset Point camp. So to try to comment on the case study, which I did try to read and follow along with, um, 
I wanted to talk about the role of Catholic Charities as a refugee resettlement agency. It's one small part of what we do at Charities, but it is significant work. As was mentioned in the study, Massachusetts is what you call a Wilson Fish State, and that is a um, that is a alternative traditional state model to providing refugee resettlement services. It's only in about it's only in 12 states, and in this Wilson Fish model, the money here in Massachusetts, the federal funds that come in from the Office of Refugee Resettlement, are managed by a governor-appointed Office of Refugees and Immigrants. And they, in turn, then contract with agencies like Catholic Charities, Jewish Vocational Services, um, Accentria Care Alliance, which is an affiliate of Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services. And we then provide case management employment services and select healthcare providers provide healthcare. And it puts together a very comprehensive battery of services and supports to refugees, asylees, Cuban and Haitian entrants, certified victims of trafficking, Amerasians, and special immigrant visa holders from Iraq and Afghanistan. It's important to note that unfortunately, it's only that aforementioned group of newcomers that can access these services. You know, one of the tragedies is, is that all immigrants do not receive the same access to services as refugees do. And, you know, I, I have to say that on the positive side, having been doing this work for 22 years and working a lot nationally, I can say that Massachusetts is truly remarkable in its resettlement work. We have a lot of work to do on our racism, on welcoming immigrants, and our state policies. But we do <laughs> tend to get refugees right. Um, it is a small population. You know, we have about an average of 1,700 refugees prior to this administration coming in. And the more, a lot of the work of resettlement is done by agencies that are rooted in a faith tradition. And so for us at Charities, our largest partner is Jewish Vocational Services, who that have a phenomenal refugee employment program. You know, they get jobs for people that have absolutely no transferable work skills, no English, haven't been in the Western workforce. They get gain, you know, gainful jobs at paying at at least minimum wage. And then there's all, all these opportunities for job upgrades. And so refugees do get those specialized services. And that's part of what the Wilson Fish program is, whereas in other states, refugees access the same types of services that mainstream, low-income, poor would have to access. And so it does make a difference. I mean, Massachusetts ranks in the top three for employment outcomes for refugees um, within a six-month, eight-month period. And that's, and that's great. Of course, we can talk a lot about, is that really good integration? Uh, what is the long-term impact on refugees? Those are all things for debate. debate. But what I wanted to kind of focus on was this faith-based, government-based partnerships. Um, at a national level, five out of the nine what we call voluntary agencies that are contracted with the State Department to do resettlement are also faith-based. And together, these agencies offer the United States an incredibly strong network of resettlement affiliates. And what I was reflecting on is prior to the standardization of the U.S. refugee program, which happened with the Refugee Act of 1980, refugees were largely resettled by communities of faith or established ethnic organizations. And so you would have, you know, uh, 
father so-and-so taking in 12 Vietnamese families, for example, into a church, and then the community coming together and helping to support them. What's really interesting is that this model has resurged with some tweaks because we are very heavily government funded and very, very strict federal policies that we have to follow. But the community, the people of faith have come to us and said, especially starting after the Syrian crisis, refugee crisis, and then really ramped up after the presidential election, people coming to us saying, how can my church help resettle a refugee? How can my temple bring a refugee family from Syria? And so we resurrected a really old parish-based sponsorship model, which we call the Power Program, which allows a faith community to adopt a sponsor or adopt, and adopt is a little bit of a tricky word, a refugee family, and they provide services from A to Z. It has been absolutely amazing what these faith groups have done and the amount of people that have rallied around welcoming a refugee family. So many of the parishes and the churches we talk to say, we have people that don't even come to church helping this refugee family. People are really interested in this refugee ministry. They, you know, these groups are able to raise money. I don't know if the pastors are thrilled with that because it's probably not going into the tithing basket, but I don't mind. <laughs> My refugees are happy. That's all that matters. Um, but it has, um, some people have told me, you know, this has really transformed our church. It's really transformed our community. We have a community in Danvers uh, where the Holy Trinity Methodist Church is taking the lead, and they've done a wonderful ecumenical um, approach to welcoming a refugee family that they have now from Congo. And, you know, I might have also heard about the incredible support from the Jewish community in resettling Syrians, particularly um, through Jewish Family Services of Metro West. The Globe did a really wonderful piece on how the temples came together and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars and volunteers to help. So we see these models coming back in, into, into play. And I think a lot of it is because people of faith are now seeing the injustices finally. I mean, granted, I wish that you know, it didn't take a little boy washing up on the shores of the Mediterranean to get people motivated, but they're motivated now and we're gonna use that and we're going to help to put all of that love into welcoming these newcomer refugees. But sadly, the decimation of the US refugee program by this administration is going to make that really difficult to happen. We have six faith communities from across all different regions of this area ready to go, and we don't have a family to give them, to place them with. Um, the refugee program has basically been slow to a halt, just like the government is taking away temporary protective status and is you know, took away DACA protections, they're also taking away protection for refugees. Um, the United States is turning its back on the world's most vulnerable. At a time when there's over 65 million people who are displaced, and of that, 21.3 million recognized refugees, and the United States, which used to be the biggest resettlement <laughs> country, and was the biggest, we took less than 1%. And that was about 75 to 80,000 a year. Now, we'll be lucky to get 45,000 refugees. My, our refugee program has been diminished. Um, you know, we're looking at, we don't know if we're gonna be open in a couple of months, to be quite frank. We are operating with absolutely no funding from the federal government. We do have cases that we're still serving, 
but refugee payment is kind of a per capita basis. So if you don't have a refugee coming in, you don't get any federal funding to support them. Now the government will tell you, well, refugee resettlement is a public-private partnership. Well, let me tell you, it's not really a partnership when the private side has to contribute more than half of the money through private foundations, donations, to make it work. Um, in the past, it wasn't always like this. Refugee programs were not, a, as our CFO says, a drain on my budget. Um, they were able to be self-sustaining. But with this administration and its lack of commitment to humanitarianism and really to morality, we are seeing this program probably going to shrink, if not almost disappear, for the next three years. So it's, it's troubling. Of course, we don't like to have to lay off staff or see programs close. But what's more troubling is those 80,000 people who could have potentially come to the United States and been able to seek safety and shelter, who now will not have that opportunity and will spend yet another day, another month, another year living in some of the world's worst situations possible. So that's what I would like to comment on with my time here, and I forgot to watch my schedule. Um, but uh, you know, I, I uh, welcome your questions after we um, get through our wonderful panel group here. And I just thank you again for your time and uh, being here today. Thank you. My name is Kathleen Reed. I'm the lead pastor at University Lutheran uh, Association of Greater Boston. Church is actually not in our foundational title. And paying attention to uh, birth stories and uh, the kind of the shape of an actual organization um, I think is critically important. It's a privilege to be part of this learning community today. Uh, I think I'm here so that I can give you a mini case study within a case study of how, uh, and we call ourselves UNILU, um, and it's just what I, I, University Lutheran will be hard for me to repeat over and over. Uh, so how did UNILU um, become part of a Cambridge Interfaith Sanctuary Coalition? Quick uh, timeline for the sanctuary movement uh, that's anchored now at UNILU. Uh, December 4th of last year, after a couple Sundays of lamenting, uh, a Harvard Divinity School student named Chris Rood preached a sermon and gave the closest thing that you get to an altar call in a Lutheran congregation. <laughs> he asked for volunteers to form a study committee. Uh, people uh, sort of knocked each other over trying to get to uh, the pulpit at the end because they wanted to participate. In March, a coalition was formalized with the signing of a covenant in a service of witness and blessing. We were at that time four Christian congregations in Harvard Square, one Jewish congregation, and a network with a very fluid acronym here at Harvard Divinity School called SLIC. Uh, which is a space where a number of Harvard-anchored student organizations come together, and they are clearly, uh, as you'll hear, one of our most powerful partners. Uh, so four Christian churches, one Jewish 
slick and HDS network. Um, we signed a covenant and covenanted to engage in both physical sanctuary and working together, organizing in communities and uh, working on advocacy around greater uh, dignity and, and safety for uh, immigrants. The mayor of Cambridge was present for that service in March. And on Memorial Day weekend, a mother, 26 years old, who was from Ecuador, and her two daughters, who are, uh, which are now um, one and three years old, uh, moved into our congregation, our building at Unilu. Uh, she remains there while she works with a team of lawyers to um, establish legal means to stay in the United States. No path like this could be smooth, but there was a relative degree of ease with the logistical pieces of sanctuary coming together that I think speak directly to the um, purpose of this symposium. And that is that University Lutheran and the other churches and synagogues enjoyed uh, good relationships with the mayor's office, Cambridge being a sanctuary city, several strong relationships with city council members, uh, at Unilu, we had good relationships with the Cambridge Police, with the regulatory agencies of Cambridge, with Harvard Square clergy, and various Harvard Square entities, including labor unions, and of course, HDS, and the Phillips Brooks House Association, which is the umbrella organization at Harvard for community service. A lot of this was the result of uh, the fact that University Lutheran has hosted a homeless shelter for 35 years um, that is entirely run by Harvard College students. As the churches and synagogues came together, and now we number 11 partners, uh, each of us brought with us, uh, each brought their own networks from within the city and the resources of their denominations and um, national expressions of their churches, synagogues. Um, now, I said it, it, there was logistical ease in the formation of this. I've now come to believe that the movement would not have become, uh, at least for our congregation, in any small measure transformational until, a, first of all, a family actually moved in. And then the congregations, um, like University Lutheran, U University Lutheran is a predominantly white congregation, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is the second least racially diverse religious entity in the United States, um, second to the AME Church. Uh, that Pew Research uh, information really kind of stunned us. But we take it seriously. Uh, a family moved in, and then, the family's needs and the mother's battle is what took center stage. Uh, we were constantly, as that support network, being challenged with all of our acquired expertise in how to do this and how to do this and how to do this and just being uh, people used to taking a problem, solving it, moving on. And it was difficult for us to learn to take our cues 
from this mother who is the expert in her own journey and who is the most credentialed person for deciding what she and her children needs, needed. That, um, so we have begun to come to grips in, in very concrete ways with a topic that I've preached on and people nod heads and that's white supremacy. So now we're learning to claim that. So brief responses to the case study questions. Uh, sanctuary, I would say this intersection of religion and politics isn't merely an in intersection, it has lots of stories to it. I mean, it, it happens like in four dimensions constantly. Uh, what do government leaders need to know? Well, get to know the stories of particular faith communities in their street level context. What's the birth story? What are the commitments of a faith community? Uh, to the well-being of a neighborhood. And what has that, has that looked like over time? I mentioned that Unilu uh, decided to offer sanctuary. That's an outgrowth of uh, a 90-year presence in Harvard Square. We were established as a campus ministry to be there in 1928 for uh, children of first-generation immigrants who were primarily Scandinavian or German from the Midwest who were now going to need a spiritual home in the scary space of Cambridge and Boston. But we, ha we expressed another um, goal just as clearly, and that was to always be open to engaging with people of any religious persuasion or no uh, religious background, engagement in the moral issues of the day. That's our birth story. We keep claiming it. Uh, I would also, I mean, you could take it back further, we're Lutherans, Reformation 500. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is for Diane Moore. Uh, Martin Luther preached a sermon at Christmas time where he said if the, his congregants wanted to imitate the Magi at the crib of the Christ child, they would give to the poor and send children to school. Uh, well, just because the Lutheran community is home to an undocumented family doesn't mean all Lutherans are going to be so inclined. A former member of University Lutheran wrote me to express dismay that we were taking the steps and let me know that he also opposed the opening of a homeless shelter 35 years earlier because he had a sense that a church building was for the vertical relationship between the <laughs> congregants and the Almighty. And things like social service could happen in other spaces. Uh, he also wanted to, us to know that we were engaging this at our peril since it was illegal and we had no business helping people who, his words, want to jump the line to get into this country, which speaks directly to the roots question. So that assessment of uh, undocumented neighbors as line jumpers highlights the question about who is ultimately obligated to offer hospitable welcome to a community's newcomers. Uh, within my faith, my faith community welcoming Jesus cannot be separated from welcoming a neighbor. But more broadly, uh, who in public service is not obligated to offer the basics that contribute to human flourishing? I think that would be a short and actually empty list. I develop, was asked to develop a certain set of questions for people running for city council here recently in Cambridge. And I would encourage anybody who uh, comes at this from 
the side of the government, uh, you could prepare yourself to always be ready to answer the following questions. These are Cambridge specific. With the rich multiplicity of immigrant communities in Cambridge, heretofore, what have been your practices for connecting with immigrants and refugees, concretely? What are you hearing from immigrants as far as the top pressures that are being faced? What, and what's your sense concerning the voices that are not being heard? What will you do to bring those voices to the public square? Now for Cambridge, as a sanctuary city for immigrants with and without documentations, what should Cambridge's priorities be going forward? Finally, again, regarding the dynamic of white supremacy in mainline denominations, uh, again, it's accurate to say that most of the congregations in our network are predominantly white. Uh, it was being able to suddenly see what we weren't seeing that uh, began to open all kinds of doors. I remember saying, I think it was to an NPR uh, interviewer, that we came at this with a lot of privilege and a lot of resources, uh, but we needed to make connections with organizations. And on my mind at the time, Central Presente, Cosecha, other organizations. But what we were missing was that in our midst at that time, there were Harvard Divinity School students. Uh, Nestor Pimienta, uh, Gabi Chavez, uh, and Alfredo Garcia, who were leaders, but somehow we weren't seeing them as leaders. Uh, you can, it's racist, it's ageist, it's your only students. Uh, and those were the voices that really called us out. And we had months of pretty uncomfortable but really productive conversation, which has led us, again, to uh, see more deeply the person in sanctuary as the person who is uh, leading her own journey. Uh, we've been called to examine and repent of our bondage to our own self-elevated sense of expertise. And it is through her eyes that we see whole worlds. We've gone from being very causey people, you know, progressive causes, to being uh, there to listen to the story of this one person and discovering that whole worlds open up through that. And we find ourselves, uh, again, at newly at tables about TPS and that sort of thing. I've gone on. So hello everyone, my name is Erica Capel James. I'm an associate professor of medical anthropology and urban studies at MIT. I'm also an alum of HDS. I, I got an MTS degree back in 1995. Um, my remarks today are going to arise from field work that I've conducted primarily among the Haitian community in Haiti, uh, among Haitians in Boston, and I've returned to doing work in Haiti. Um, but I, in large part, in my scholarly work, still can't hear, in, in large part in my scholarly, scholarly work, I think about kind of the politics of compassion and the ethics of intervention. And in, so far, the panel has been, um, apart from Patricia's uh, comments, um, pretty much presenting kind of the rosier sides 
of the activist struggle on behalf of immigrants and refugees. So I'm gonna talk a little bit more about some of the challenges of, within the institutions that are providing this kind of support and what are some of the, the questions that uh, institutions should be thinking about as they take on more and more um, of the role of providing aid to those who are vulnerable that perhaps government should be providing. So in, in other words, I'm gonna ask, does providing charity undermine justice? Okay, so I very quickly um, came into the Div School in 1993, uh, heard about the plight of Haitian refugees who were not being acknowledged uh, as refugees, who were you know, being labeled as economic migrants as per uh, policy going back to the, the Reagan era. And as has already been mentioned by Patricia, there's been very little discussion of the ways in which military intervention contributes to the conditions of insecurity on the ground in the countries that, are, that refugees and immigrants are fleeing from. Um, so I was very interested in trying to understand you know, how in uh, a country that had uh, suffered with political conflict um, from within its own um, political sphere, but also exacerbated by the role of uh, U.S. military training of um, uh, actors who brought about a coup against the first democratically elected president. You know, how do we think about what response is owed to those who have been traumatized or who've been targeted with violence? So it, I wound up, uh, on the side, I, I have a skill um, as a physical therapist. I wound up being able to work with survivors of torture in a therapeutic capacity um, from roughly 1996 to 2000. And during the course of that work, I developed a project that uh, became part of my, my first book, uh, looking at post-conflict transitions and the roles of, of mostly secular uh, humanitarian or development organizations that are trying to help um, communities that have suffered with uh, political violence and also who are traumatized. So I think a lot about the way that trauma resides in the body, um, not just of individuals, but, but is also collective. And that work led me to try to think through what happened with Haitians who left Haiti at various points, um, you know, beginning in, under the Duvalier regime, which lasted 1957 to 1986, but also at subsequent periods, and whether they left in response to political violence, you know, of, of fear, or in response to not being able to find work because the instability of, of their countries was not engendering, um, you know, a, a robust economy. So some of our challenge, I think, is to continue to push back at the artificial separation of political refugees and economic migrants. Um, but then a, a, another big issue is, you know, what is the trauma that people are bringing with them as they come, and how do different institutions respond and attempt to help these communities to resettle and rebuild their lives? And therein lies um, some of the challenges. So an institution that I wound up um, being invited to serve on its advisory board uh, is in Dorchester. I'm not gonna name it right now, but it is part of a faith-based network. Uh, it began in a church community and gradually, um, this was in the late 70s, and over the years became more formal and uh, eventually began to offer a variety of services from childcare to you know, English as a second language to uh, computer training, job training, um, 
uh, elder support services, and there were a lot of health programs. So my work became, um, at the invitation of many of the Haitians who were staff at this institution, they asked, you know, would you consider writing this up? So I began, um, with permission, uh, a study, and which is ongoing. I've now been writing for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, but to try to trace the history of the institution itself and also of the staff especially and some of the individuals served um, over the years of its, of its life. And a lot of the challenges that many of the Haitians whom I encountered, but particularly the staff, had, you know, they raised had to do with the institution being located in a faith-based network. And in part, many of the restrictions on the religious teachings of the particular institution prohibited staff from being able to advocate to the best of their degree, they felt, especially around issues of preventing the spread of infectious disease and promoting maternal and child health. And this has to do with, of course, issues of contraception. I won't go on. You can guess uh, of whom I'm speaking. But the role of um, Haitians, you know, most of whom were immigrants, some of whom were formerly acknowledged refugees who had regularized their status and become citizens in this in institution was a fraught one. You know, so we've talked a little bit on the panel about the need to integrate um, uh, into the, the uh, power structures of institutions, those whom are served. It's challenging, it's challenging because of linguistic issues, it's challenging because many folk are carrying with them um, trauma from the past, but also a different understanding of administrative bureaucracies. It's also challenging because in, in the case that I'm speaking of, um, many of the staff felt that their suffering and their trauma um, had become exploited and capitalized upon by the institution in which they were embedded. So a question is, what are the gaps in communication that can occur between service providers, those served institutional networks, but then also between the public and the private sector, such that a population's vulnerability, they themselves may perceive that their vulnerability becomes a commodity. So it's, it's an issue to think about in terms of the ethics as faith-based institutions take on greater roles that one might expect the state or government to provide. Um, to what degree does the governance that these institutions are enacting, um, can, it, can it lend itself towards bureaucratic indifference rather than continuing to be um, advocacy-oriented, justice-oriented, and human rights-oriented. So I'm throwing these, these comments out for us to think more broadly about what is at stake when uh, private institutions take on greater roles that the, the state is abdicating, and to what pressure can we continue to bring to bear um, for justice at the level of migration policy, refugee policy, um, at all levels, from municipalities to, the, to states, also to federal government. Um, then uh, another thread of the research, which I won't go into as much today, had to do with the enduring legacy of trauma that um, individuals are continuing to grapple with. So I would just say more generally, um, institutions that are trying to advocate on behalf of migrants and refugees you know, should, would, it would behoove yourselves, and you're already doing this work, but to think more about to what degree psychosocial trauma can be addressed 
not only in individuals, but in families and, and communities. Um, let's see, what else do I have? Finally, you know, as, a, as an academic, I'm an anthropologist, a social theorist, I'll, I'll kind of back up even more and abstractly than I've been talking about. Uh, my work suggests that in many countries there really is no separation, wall of separation between church and state, as Thomas Jefferson um, once called it. And so the degree to which that line is strengthened as a partnership or erodes and becomes like a tug of war, you know, as Marjean is talking about the extent to which Catholic Charities has, is losing its capacity to be an advocate because of, you know, the Trump administration's policies and uh, uh, a shifting away from um, a moral stance that our country has taken to greater extents in, in previous administrations or at different points in our history. And so what I'm, what I'm hoping is that um, these hybrid public-private partnerships can still become greater or stronger vehicles for uh, private institutions to hold government to account, but then also continuing to be wary of taking a more active role. Um, I, there's a term, uh, neoliberalism, which refers to the extent to which uh, social services that states have provided are becoming retrenched, and mm -hmm. that uh, there's an ethic of privatization, which we, um, many of you may be familiar with, but where many are articulating that government should not be in the business of providing social services, and it should default to private entities. Mm -hmm. There can be a danger with public-private partnerships between faith-based institutions and government to deepen a neoliberal ethic that lets uh, the state move away from its commitments to uphold mm -hmm. citi citizenship and um, the, let's say, entitlements may not be the right word, but the what should be owed to the average human being who's suffering, who wants safety, you know, and to what degree can we continue to push for, you know, not only human rights, but for our, our respective governments at whatever level to, you know, continue to keep the point of view of the human person as a worthy, worthy of support, regardless of where they're from or what their background is, et cetera. Um, and to put kind of the, the corporate side of, of aid, push that back a bit. Um, I should probably stop there, but I can say more later, so thank you. Um, thank you, Erica, and uh, thanks to all the panelists. I think uh, we can agree that was a really rich uh, conversation and made uh, the point uh, that we heard last night about the, the central importance of looking at um, these matters of religion and politics and uh, religious literacy and government at, at the local level, in, at a very concrete local level. So um, thank you. Thank you all. We have a few. Um, I'm Steve Prothero from Boston University, and I'm the, the so far silent moderator of this, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> this conversation. And uh, so we have um, a little time left for questions and answers, and we have a microphone. So please uh, raise your hand, and we'll come, we'll come find you. Thank you. I think I'll go first. Thank you very much. Uh, and just please, uh, hi, just please identify yeah. yourselves and, uh, and, then, and then ask your question. Thanks. <coughs> yes, my name is Reverend Jufour Florissant. I am the executive pastor for Voice of the Gospel, Tabernacle in uh, Maraben, which is uh, predominantly 
uh, Haitian churches, first and second Haitian generations, they might have been, uh, been living in Massachusetts uh, for the past uh, 30 years, uh, been involved uh, uh, greatly with the Haitian uh, community. I chair many organizations, the Haitian American United, Haitian Parent Association, Chihuahua and Center. I'm also an executive member with the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization. So all my work is uh, fighting for social justice, and I know how God is interested in social justice, and for Haitian people, faith is the last resort, especially when they're facing crisis back home, uh, knowing that God will intervene in the situations when taking uh, the boat ride uh, from Haiti uh, to United States. And we've heard uh, compelling uh, testimonials about people who, how they have been uh, survived of the sea for many days, months, before they can arrive here and establish themselves um, knowing that uh, this country will embrace them and offer them an opportunity uh, to remain here. Uh, this is a very vibrant community, as you know, more than 200 churches throughout. Uh, if you know that, that's what happened. But uh, being, just my question is regarding, I mean, uh, thank you very much for all the panelists, uh, uh, great discussions regarding faith, religions, governments, and also uh, issues and crises uh, facing uh, different uh, communities. Uh, and uh, we have been partnered with uh, uh, many organizations for the past six months uh, regarding uh, the uh, TPS issues. And, uh, and I thank uh, my colleague, uh, Patricia Montes, whom I've been working just uh, very closely in different uh, uh, gatherings we have done, Catholic charities that stand with us uh, in many, many aspects uh, uh, regarding this uh, important crisis facing our people. Uh, let me bring uh, the, the case issue. You know, I was, I was reading just a quote by Henry Toro that says, men live lives of quiet desperations. Uh, this situation uh, right now, the recent, uh, the elimination of a TPS will definitely cause not only a traumatic uh, situation throughout those families, but also psychological uh, stresses. Uh, I have men who approach me and say, well, they, they can't go back to Haiti. What they're going to do? So they plan basically, you know, you don't want to hear that, to even divorce their wives uh, because they need to find ways to remain in the country and be able to provide for their children because they don't have anything uh, to go back to Haiti. Right this year in July, I was in Haiti with a group of 45 uh, people in the southern part of Haiti interviewing more than 100 pastors and their wives uh, telling us in the southern parts they really relied upon the remittances from the people who are here, especially those that have been displaced after the earthquake uh, now. Uh, so is the situation how the uh, faith community basically can embrace uh, this important crisis and help, uh, I don't know, by so many uh, means or ways to uh, talk to Congress to act on behalf of the TPS recipients uh, because the preliminary conversation that I'm hearing uh, from Washington, TPS is not part of the conversation right now. They are just re really focusing on the DACA recipients instead of TPS holders. That's my question. What the faith and all the elected officials can do basically to bring uh, that TPS uh, issue at the forefront and helping those families uh, remain in here. Great, thank you, yes. Thank you, um, well, good to see you again. Um, I, I, as I frame the, 
the issue and the challenge are a few different ways to take this on. There are the technical challenges of how do we, uh, in, using the judiciary and the courts, take on the legal challenges of it, um, facing up and taking head on the president's actions. There's the legislative fixes we can take on, but there's also the adaptive challenge, which this is what it is. How do we pluck the value strings of stakeholders um, in our communities, in our places of worship, our elected officials to uh, pluck their values? Perhaps it's our values as Americans, again, of seeking to be a diverse, tolerant society. Of, it's uh, values in our faith and our religious beliefs are uh, plucking our values around humanity to coalesce and people to will, we have a willingness to take on the challenge. Uh, so I got, I, I think, two points I want to make on this. One, it's important that um, we go to where people are. We talked about uh, what we're missing in policy today is a lack of empathy. It was Martin Luther King, Dr. King, who said, you know, we must accept ignorance with grace. There's a lot of ignorance around immigration, what TPS is, sanctuary cities. And we can't dismiss people's opposing views as being stupid or making no sense. It may very well be make no sense. Or be at the, or, or just label them as being racist and not sympathetic to others. We need to go to where they are and listen and help them understand and pluck those value streams to move. And that's elected officials as well. Because there is too much silence. There is too much silence. There's some demonstrative action We'll pass resolutions in our cities and towns and at the state level, some states will hang the banners, but you can't be a little pregnant. You're either all in or you're not. And the other conversation I would challenge the religious community is in your houses of worship. I've said this to people of my faith. We're in our homilies. When do I ever hear a priest talk about what are we doing for our fellow parishioners? They're sitting in the audience. And it happens there. Not that they don't care. I do get tweets, you know, from Pope Francis. That's all fantastic. And Cardinal O'Malley once in a while. But where, did, when does the flock ever hear this constant homily and visual uh, taking on and challenging our values? Does it happen? I, I believe it happened in your church. But it's not happened in every synagogue, mosque, temple, or other houses of worship. It's not, and when we, I meet with my interfaith group, and some of them, I challenged all of them, and to still to this day, it does not happen enough. So, how do you take on, well you take on elected officials like me, like Patricia did, and talk about these are your, this is, these are people in your community, these are your neighbors, friends, the kids that go to school, your children, you pluck my value strengths. And we say that to every other person, we listen to them, go to where they're starting from and have their conversation. But at least, and enter your elected officials, but in, with your flock, that has to start there as well. That's where I come from, those points. Uh, Sean, you had a question? Did you want to weigh in on that? Sean, before you uh, start, um, Erica wants to weigh in on this. Um, I think one of the things that is most critical is to remind our uh, political leaders that the population of Haitians who are here that have um, a regularized status and who are providing remittances, as Reverend Florissant has said, are not only um, helping to bolster the economy in Haiti, but Haiti already cannot handle the number of Haitians who are being deported from the Dominican Republic back to Haiti. And uh, the lack of support could potentially force further migration you know, so I don't want to sound kind of cynical about this, but 
if there is a true commitment to um, trying to help Haiti develop, as was stated after the earthquake and after Hurricane Matthew, and all, then uh, staying this uh, recension of the TPS measure would, would demonstrate that and would be better for everyone um, in the long run. So. I just want to add that, oh, what's this? That it's the same case with people from Central America. I mean, I'm so glad that you said that, uh, you know, in this country, people from Central America are being treated like as regular uh, migrants, economic migrants, and they should be treated as refugees because we are talking about the most, like, the two most more dangerous places in Earth after city, and that's not enough to say that you're coming from the most dangerous place in Central America. So, and and our crisis, our communities were living a crisis before Trump. We are afraid because Trump is here in power. No, I'm sorry, but the Obama administration was also the deporting yeah. and accompanying minors from countries like Honduras and El Salvador. I'm from Honduras, and the U.S. government removed the Peace Corps from my country because it's not secure for their people, but it's secure for them, right, to deport and accompany minors. So and I think it's important to remind them. Right now, I don't know if you, you know, but the Honduras is facing a political crisis after the elections, and the U.S. is backing the imposition of, of a dictatorship, basically. So that crisis, this crisis, is going to you know, push more people to come to the US. We're not ready to receive more people. So, and I think that that's the conversation that we need to have and the responsibility that the US government has and the disasters that our countries are facing right now. So, and I think that TPS is just a small piece. We have been trying to change uh, public policy in the US and now we're trying to defend something that was in place already, like TPS programs. And I think that's, I mean, it's, of course, it's a long-term thing but we need to start naming the same, the, 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 ¿cómo se dice las cosas? The things, the way they are, I'm sorry. And so, just because, uh, you know, the elections took place in my country like a week ago, and we don't have results. And the U.S. is quiet, and they are backing that. So that's not fair. Hi, my name is Sean Casey. I'm from Georgetown University. If Congress doesn't act affirmatively in less than three months to pass legislation that President Trump is willing to sign. Uh, 800,000 DACA folk become vulnerable to then a rolling deportation. I'm just curious from a sanctuary perspective, what kind of conversations are going on in government, among uh, cities, offices, and staff, NGOs, faith-based organizations, uh, religious communities? I mean, I would think that a, a city like Boston which may have a disproportionate number of these DACA kids. Uh, if I'm a Jeff Sessions or I'm the head of DHS, this might be an, an interesting zip code to start uh, sending ICE to, to roll up these students and, and send them back, or children and sending them back. I'm just curious in terms of sanctuary, what kind of conversations going on across your platforms in anticipation of the worst possible outcome here? Um, it's a good, important question. and. Since in the days leading up and since this president was elected, we've, I can speak for my colleagues in Boston and other cities around the country, we've been talking to each other. We've been talking to our, uh, our constituents, to our partners and, and the community, to faith-based organizations, to social service agencies, what do we do? So in, in the worst case scenario, there's a few things. One, we are working, and I'll tell you, there's a lit litany of folks in the line out the door of people who want pro bono to represent our communities, and they are. So we are, we are certainly strategists on legal strategies. We're thinking logistically, how do we, 
uh, whether it's undocumented immigrants or deported and children left behind, who will house them, who will step up, and folks like myself have said and others, you know, and my wife has said, well, we'll, we'll take a child in. You know, simple things like that. But I think there's another important conversation we have to have is the ethics and how we conduct and communicate uh, with the people uh, who are most vulnerable here. And it was Ron Heifetz who had um, mentioned to many elected leaders as part of a project I'm doing over the Yedla, uh, with Paul Revel, was, you know, you're going to have to be honest with folks. What we have sworn to do is to put ourselves in front for them. What we've sworn to do is fight and use every resource at our means and beyond to protect them. But we have to be clear and honest that some will probably be deported. Many will be. Some may die. And they will be suffering. And how do we, how do we, how do we build from there? Uh, so that's part of the painful and stark reality of the conversations we're having as well. I'll tell you, at least in some of them. Can I sit in front of a family until I say nothing's going to happen to them? I don't think I can in good conscience and in my faith say that to them. I can tell them I'll do everything and I'll go to jail for them. But uh, I don't know, but I'll say the conversations logistically and we're using every resource for partners like Central Presente and others in the community and the churches is happening and uh, every means at our disposal, certainly. Um, do others want to weigh in on this from a, yeah. Immediately after the announcement that DACA was going to be withdrawn, a professor at the Kennedy School, who is a member of my congregation, came to see me and said, what are we going to do about this? It'll be the middle of the semester. And that conversation has been circulating uh, among all the Harvard chaplains, there's 34 of us, and, uh, and Harvard University is relatively active in working on these questions. Um, but it is a huge sanctuary question. Uh, can, can University Lutheran become a university for DACA students? And could we cooperate with um, the university in doing that? Um, we're, we're talking about everything possible. And um, I'll just add for um, the city of Boston, I mean, I honestly feel especially as an immigrant myself that we're often um, facing a massive fire and giving someone this to fight it with, but we're committing to this at least, um, that um, we are doing um, legal clinics um, with which really what we do is we leverage um, relationships with, with immigrant, you know, immigration attorneys, um, and we offer people free le legal advice um, twice a month in our offices, which we think is important for just also creating that trust with government, but we're working with um, supporting the initiatives of, of Centro Presente and partnering with the Attorney General to also see if for both um, TPS holders or, or DACA recipients there might be other legal alternatives that, that they haven't explored and supporting them in that. Um, and also, obviously, fiercely advocating for, for permanent solutions for, for both communities. But it does feel like a time of, of great um, power differential. Um, hi. Um, I'm Jack Jenkins. I'm with Think Progress. Um, I'm the religion reporter. And I, I want to bring up something that Eric had mentioned and then kind of turn it around as a question for the panel. 
Um, the partnership between government and faith groups around immigration and refugees is often lifted up as kind of the platonic ideal of something that's worked very well. Um, the fact that faith groups play a big role in you know, helping resettle refugees, the fact that faith groups are very active in advocating for immigrants, like that's often one of the few places where they can say well, this has worked pretty well. But one of the things that often doesn't get discussed is there's also points of tension there. You know, for instance, during the child migrant crisis a few years ago, some of the faith groups that were offering emergency medical um, services to folks who had just crossed the border were also denying them um, you know, emergency contraception if they had been raped during that journey. And so I'm, I'm curious about, you know, given that faith communities are also kind of first responders here, like you're talking about offering sanctuary and, and some sort of help in the midst of a government that is not necessarily aiding them, how do you balance that tension between what's expected of a faith community, both from their faith and practically if the government's not gonna be there, and the danger of faith communities taking on too much of this responsibility and the government leaving it there, if that makes any sense. Um, so I can, I, I can start with Erica, but anybody who wants to respond to that. I think this is a question for the practitioners. I would like to hear the answer myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and since you mentioned contraception, I'm sure you're all looking at me. Um, <laughs> and I'm by no means a scholar. I wish that um, Father Brian Hare could have been here because he could have answered this very eloquently. Um, but I'm gonna try to fumble through it for what we do on the ground. Um, you know, yes, it does come up, you know, issues of contraception, things that are, you know, contrary to what Catholic social teach or Catholic teaching tells us. And what we do in our office, because we do work with such a diverse population, is we, for a better word, deflect to the medical providers. So we would, if a client comes to us and says that she wants to go on birth control, many of the refugees are put on birth control in the camps as a way of population <laughs> control, which is whole another issue. Um, but uh, we say this is an issue for your doctor to handle. You know, we make sure that she gets to the doctor um, and that she has that sort of counseling. And we don't necessarily facilitate it, per se. There's this issue in the Catholic Church called material cooperation, I think it is. I don't know if any Catholic scholars are in here. You probably can answer this better than me. Um, but we don't not try to meet that need, we just we say this is, and it's not appropriate for us to advise on that. We're not medical professionals. Um, and I think, you know, with contraception, it's probably about the only place that comes up. Um, in our work that we do with our social enterprise of community interpreter services, when we do get requests to translate or um, a document that would have something, you know, that's not something that falls within church teachings, then we, def we decline to do that service because that's not something that we have to do and there's other people that can do it. So that's my uneducated <laughs> answer, more about what we do on a practical day-to-day -day basis. But it does come up, you know, and our staff, as we bring on staff who aren't Catholic, most of the staff, I don't even know what religion half my staff are, to be honest, um, but those questions come up and we explain you know, this is what we do. We want, we don't want to not help the person, but we also have to work within the boundaries that we're given. I have a comment that is, I, I'm not going to answer your question. Of course, I have a different perspective from the you know community-based organization, but I just want to acknowledge the work that the Catholic Church is doing in Mexico. I mean, the Catholic Church uh, had shelters uh, through the migrant route in Mexico. But the, the part that I really like, or that I respect, is that uh, there are leaders within the Catholic Church, like Father Alejandro Solalinda, I don't know if you know him, but 
Father Alejandro Salalinde is doing more than food and shelter for migrants. He's challenging, actually, the government. He's doing political advocacy to support and defend the human rights of um, migrant, um, migrants in, in Mexico. And he's also sometimes challenging the, the church, right? So, and I think that that's the kind of world that we have to see here, in our opinion. Right, and I know that we're talking about connections, building a very strong connection with, within, between government and, and faith communities. But uh, you know, I think it's important also to think about us and don't don't just uh, uh, speak for us, but speak with us. We're talking about immigrants, right, and uh, and, and refugees, and don't see us uh, in, uh, don't work for us, work with us, and see us as an equal partner. And I think that we are facing a crisis, and I think this is a, this is a particular moment where we should be working together and strategizing in a more organized way. And I don't think that we are doing that in the US. Uh, I don't think that we're doing that in Massachusetts. But I think that having conversations like this are very important, because we need, we need to identify that common strategy to confront the crisis that we are facing. And uh, talking about the DACA, the, the uh, the question that was before, I think that uh, we have a lot of people with DACA, but I think that it's intentional that this government is uh, minimizing the conversation about immigration and saying the only problem that we have is that they are uh, eliminating DACA, and that's not true. The conversation about immigration in the US is more than DACA. We're talking about in a company minors that are invisible, right? They are they're still coming because the situation in Central America remains the same, maybe worse. So, and I think that we, it's our responsibility to also hold accountable our government and even the press, because the press is keeping invisible a lot of people, people with DPS, people from Haiti, what is going on there. And I think it's our responsibility to raise awareness about all these issues. We just have a couple minutes, so two quick questions here. Two folks with the mics. Yeah, this is a data question. I'm, I'm Tom Simons. I'm a retired uh, U.S. career diplomat. I have been a consul. Uh, but it's data questions. Uh, the mayor said that Somerville, a third of your population is foreign-born. I just asked what the total population is. And for Selena Barrios-Milner, can you give us the same thing for Boston? Mm -hmm. And maybe Reverend Reed. I don't know. She may know about Cambridge. I, you know, just what proportion of the pop overall populations are, and what, what's the size? Yeah. Uh, the total population, some of those just north of 80,000 today. 80, yeah. 30, yeah, around there, more. Um, we're around 674,000 in Boston, or 670-something. And um, our proportion of that, our share, the foreign-born share of that is 27% right now. Um, what's really interesting, especially from a policy-making perspective, is that, for example, for youth, um, like ha even if the majority of young people are um, US-born, um, half of the, the students in our school system have a foreign-born parent. And so we, we take into account not just the number of foreign-born um, that we have, but also when you have children of foreign-born, we, we treat them basically like, like they're immigrants as well. But foreign-born is 200,000 people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me do, uh, I get a chance in the next panel, but this is Scott Harshbarger, uh, 
uh, just one category as a former attorney general in Massachusetts. But one of the things I'm interested in in the discussion here, uh, we're in a blue state, uh, we're in a blue part of the, the country, and I just wonder how the, the, the reality that if people, it's, advocacy is terrific and important, witness is terrific and important, sanctuary is very important, but at the end of the day, our values get played out in our political system, and that's called voting and the Office of Citizenships, whatever we deal with that. If you, it sometimes surprises me that people like Joe Curtitoni continue to be elected, that people like, we have Amara Healy in Massachusetts, we have, but how many people are voting for those folks because of their stance on these issues when they're willing to stand up and deliver? And that, that goes to us as citizens then, and, and I say that respectfully, without, many people aren't citizens that are involved in this effort. But if we don't participate in the elective process, it's not an accident, we had an election in November of 2016, and 50% of American citizens stayed home, didn't even vote. We vote locally, and just in Boston, just went through an election, with less than 14% of the people even took the time to vote. In Cambridge, which is, a, you know, still we only produce 50%. That is, so I guess to all of us, the question is, how do we learn the important role that civic engagement and civic education, including participation in a government that as all of us know, of by and for the people? So I just think as we, the overlay of some of this is, how do we, make democracy work in terms of the values that we are espousing here. And it doesn't just happen through academic discussions. It happens on the ground in terms of day-to-day -day participation in the election process. If you want elected officials to hear you, it's great to have great advocates. It's great, but it's also money counts, people count, votes count, support counts, and standing up for courage is particularly important. Uh, in this area. I think we're lucky here, but the next panel will also raise the question about what do you do when the political process is totally against you uh, in this area, as opposed to here where we at least have a political process that is responsive, sometimes often in spite of the fact that probably it's not delivering huge number of votes and support against other priorities. I guess there's a question there somewhere, but yeah. probably unfortunately just the yes, statement. Yes, uh, quick, quick response to the mayor and then we'll... Uh, okay. Um, and I'll focus on quick. Um, so I thought locally what I saw in the elections where I saw incumbents not being reelected for in my city and in other places is really people, the, the one, part, one of the positive signs is people truly believe the best way to effectuate change is at the local level if you want to change something in Washington. That's not happening enough in this state. Patricia and others are advocating for the Trust Act in Massachusetts. Why is this progressive leader in the union not passed a statewide trust act. We have a legislature in the state that needs to be held accountable at the local level. Anything happens nationally, two out of three people blame you at the local level. And if they are not doing your job, they throw you out, they don't vote the next person in. Um, we need to start running candidates who are gonna fight for these causes. Someone mentioned social progress. This is a battle of social progress in our country today. And that's the big divide. But at the legislature, the, at the state house, they seem to be sort of insulated from this. Uh, because we do have some really good 
members of the legislature who vote if you scored it right on the progressive side and for these good social causes, but overall, it's absurd. The, uh, you know, the, the resolution was good on TPS, but the trust act should be passed by now. And, and I think we need to not just support those candidates, I'll say this clearly, and I know some of these folks who have political courage, but those who will walk the fence in these issues, quite honestly, should not be reelected. And we need to be a little bit louder about that. I just, I'm sorry, I just want to add very quickly that with the very few resources that we have, we try not just to mobilize the Latino votes. We also try to educate them because we need to think critically, right? Uh, our members are not a little machine. But the thing is, we have been trying to educate and mobilize the Latino vote. But what happened with the Obama administration, right? People don't trust both political parties because they don't have the political will. Both of them have been part of a political structure that have been oppressing us. The Obama administration have an awful record on immigration. It's terrible, right? Was the blue, the blue party, right? So, and I think it's it's time to have that conversation about that too. Is the the Democratic Party doing, you know, making some changes, supporting our communities? I don't think it is. So, and I, and we need to start thinking about that. And it's our responsibility to do it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you so much to the panel, and please join me in thanking the panel.